You are listening to the Midtown Church Podcast, a ministry that exists to make Jesus known. Um, Open confession right from the beginning. I am using today's text to springboard to a, a much bigger, larger, deeper, significant topic. Um, And so I'll forewarn you on that. I'm doing that in part because our text refers to husbands and it refers to wives, it refers to women. Um, And although men aren't mentioned specifically, they are certainly assumed and uh, that's a problem today. For it's not inclusive terminology and doesn't recognize that we have progressed, we have evolved. And marriage isn't exclusive to men and women, and gender isn't reserved to binary classifications of male and female. Uh, We live in a different world today. We live in a a time where marriage can be a union between people of the same sex and where gender is non-binary and doesn't rest on social constructs. It doesn't rest on one's genitals. It doesn't rest on chromosomal makeup or who one is declared to be at birth. Our sex is one thing, our gender identity is another, and it may change over time, and it may change more than once. Furthermore, one's gender shouldn't be declared at birth. It should be what one declares it to be and how one identifies themselves. This is the world we live in. Additionally, the use of male and female to designate one's gender isn't sufficient. More inclusive language is necessary today. Lesbian, gay, bisexual, transsexual, queer, cisgender, intersex, two-spirit, and so on. That's why the plus is necessary. And therefore, the removal of gender-exclusive language is required. This is something that BC has done earlier this year with 138 regulations. I'm reading, and you can read it behind me, from a recent Vancouver Sun article. Most of the changes involve the words he, she, himself, and herself. The words aunt, father, and son were also removed in some instances. Using inclusive language wherever we can doesn't just remove barriers to services, it also protects people's rights, said the Parliamentary Secretary for Gender Equity, Grace Lohr. It's a way for government to make life a bit easier for the thousands of British Columbians who face unnecessary barriers due to outdated language and to help address gender bias. And so, according to her, he, she, himself, herself, aunt, son, father, It's outdated language. The changes were made under the Better Regulations for British Columbians uh, program that has also been used to change the term substance abuse to substance use in government rules. Uh, Elsewhere, uh, pregnant, the classification of pregnant women has been replaced with pregnant people, him and her replaced with they and them. News of pregnant men is now becoming more commonplace. Um, In 2005, uh, gay gay marriage was legalized in Canada, as I think most of us know, but a recent ruling in Newfoundland found that a marriage could include more than two people. 
in St. John's, the first polyamorous, poly many amore, many loves relationship was declared legal recently. Uh, you can read the following quote on the screen from Justice Robert Fowler. He said, in light of this ruling, society is continuously changing and family structures are changing along with it. This must be recognized as a reality. That's the world in which we live in today. Um, I've probably bit off more than I can chew today um, because I want to address the topics of sexuality, sexuality, gender, and marriage today. Um, I want to start by talking specifically about what makes this topic so difficult to discuss, but I also want to offer some things that we need to know and highlight some errors and some idols of the church that keep us from building relationships that are truly loving with those who identify as LGBTQ+. Why am I doing this? Well, I feel the need to do this, um, not only because of this text, but because of the prevalent nature of this topic, we are, we are days away from entering a month in our city and other cities along with it where, where this topic and the LGBTQ plus community will be front and center. And, and I believe there is a lot of confusion, a lot of misinformation, a lot of fear, a lot of misguidance in the church today. And part of the role that God has given me is to equip the saints. That's the call that I have. And I hope I have earned enough favor with you uh, to attempt to do that today. And I, I openly confess <clears throat> that I am taking great license addressing this topic coming out of today's text. So thanks for your grace. Um, we'll talk about braids and jewelry another time, all right? But to be clear, before, before moving ahead, <clears throat> I, I really wanna be very, very clear on this. I don't wanna be political today, that's not my desire. I'm not a politician, have no desire to be a politician. Um, so I, want, I don't wanna be political today and I don't wanna grandstand today. What I wanna do today, I wanna be prophetic today. I, I wanna take the word of God like prophets of old and speak into our culture and speak to you, God's people. That, that's what I wanna do today. There is a style of preaching called prophetic preaching. That's what it does. It doesn't ignore the culture. It doesn't put its head in the sand. It doesn't stay silent. It speaks into it with the goal of helping God's people as they exist and, and live their lives in exile, as, we, as we've been talking about in our study of First Peter. So with that in mind, let me begin asking first, what makes this topic so difficult to discuss? Eight reasons why. Um, this message today is in two sections, eight points in each section, section 16 total. So buckle up. Um, here we go. You should be home by dinner. Um, so, um, by the way, if, if this is a message that builds upon itself. So if you hear one or two points and don't remain for the rest, if you leave, it will crumble like a game of Jenga. So um, you, need to, you need to stick with me um, uh, because there are 16 points and they, they build upon each other. So here's the first reason why this topic is so difficult to talk about. First, 
we know someone who identifies as LGBTQ+, and we love them. We have a relationship with them. They could be in our families, could be a close friend, could be a, a coworker, and, and anything other than affirming them may cause great hurt and perhaps fracture the relationship, and we can't stand the thought of that. A second reason, a- any debate today regarding this topic is antiquated, or at least it's seen that way. Are we really still talking about this in in 2022? Do we still discuss whether black people should be able to ride at the front of the bus or whether women should vote? So why are we talking about this? Additionally, the LGBTQ plus community is widely affirmed and, and mainstream today, especially on our campuses, especially in Hollywood, and especially with our politicians. Try running for mayor in this city thinking that you can still win and not walk in the gay pride parade at the end of the month. It won't happen. Besides, who wants to be called a dinosaur? Who wants to be called homophobic? Unloving, intolerant, a bigot, a hater, and so on. Furthermore, we could lose our jobs. We could lose our customers. We could lose our constituents. We, we could lose possibly our parishioners, which may happen today. A third reason, Christian extremists. Every, every faith, every ism, Every ideology has them, and Christianity is no different. And who wants to be painted with an extremist brush? You may be Muslim, but that doesn't mean you think flying planes into buildings is a good idea. You may be an environmentalist, but that doesn't mean that that you're okay spiking trees. You may be pro-life, but you don't think it's okay bombing abortion, abortion clinics. But in each of those worldviews, there are people who do. And people cry out, I don't want them to represent me. They don't represent me. So too in the Christian faith. There are those in the Christian faith who have responded to this topic and the gay community in ways that are anything but Christian, and we fear being grouped with them, and so we stay quiet. A fourth reason, there there are those under the Christian umbrella who land in different places. Uh, You can attend churches in this city, um, several of them in fact, that are led by people who are openly gay. Um, Individuals that will marry people, perform weddings for people who are openly gay as well. You can attend churches in this city who are part of denominations that affirm all things connected to the LGBTQ plus community. So what do you have? Well, on the one side, you have extremists, and on the other side, you have the affirmers, with both of them placing themselves under the Christian umbrella. It's confusing as to the difficulty. Fifth is the heat around it. 
Heat that makes it difficult to have a temperate conversation uh, about it. Heat that is so hot uh, on both sides at times, very sadly, that makes it nearly impossible to have a winsome and respectful discussion that doesn't lead to labeling and vitriol. It's almost impossible today. A sixth reason. For many in the LGBTQ plus community, their sexuality is their identity. If you wanna shut down a conversation with an LGBTQ plus man or woman, simply say God loves the sinner but hates the sin. For when that sin, quote unquote, is entirely synonymous with how you see yourself, there is an impossibility in delineating between the two. If you say God hates what you call sin, that's why I put the quotes around it, then what I am hearing is that God hates me. Makes it difficult. A seventh reason. Ministries that promise what the Bible doesn't. That there are people and, and there are ministries who believe that a conversion to Christianity promises the removal of any desire and temptation towards an LGBTQ plus lifestyle. The Bible does not promise that. Sadly, there are people and there are ministries who have made heterosexuality the ultimate aim. More on that later. Eighth, Section one, almost done. See, you can calm, be at peace. Um, finally, eight, those who have made an LGBTQ plus orientation the sin to end all sins. We'll come back to this. But for now, those are the eight. Add on top of that recent laws that make a message like this illegal today, at least parts of it, in certain contexts. And it only adds to the difficulty in addressing this topic in any way less than affirming. So there you go, that's what makes it difficult. You could add more, I am sure. Um, but how do we respond? What do, what do we need to know? And what mistakes have we in the church made? What idols have we built up? Well, let me offer eight things to be aware of. First, <clears throat> excuse me, it's never okay to respond in any way that is not loving to whomever regardless. Our, our neighbors in this city, our neighbors in this neighborhood are Hindi, Muslim, Sikh, neo-pagan, atheist, gay, straight, red, yellow, black, white, and our call evidencing that we're disciples of Jesus is to love our neighbors as ourselves. In the par parable of the Good Samaritan, when wrapping up, Jesus ends by asking, and you can read this behind me, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Th this is the call of Jesus. 
then and now. And any action by omission or commission to anyone not loving and mercy-filled is not Christian, is, is, um, is, is not a Christian response and, and bears no witness of the Jesus we claim to follow. A second thing that we need to be aware, be aware of, love as defined in the Bible is not simply shown in affirmation. In fact, that may and oftentimes displays the opposite of love and may be more about self-love and fear than anything else. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes in 1 Corinthians 13 that love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It is not love to affirm what the God of love doesn't. Additionally, the love of God that has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit brings the strength and conviction to guide and and correct. Love is willing to enter the discomfort. You ask any parent who loves their child and they know they have had to say no or stop or you're wrong. And doing that, expressing great love for their child. But this leads to the crux of the issue, right? The crux of the issue is a funk. How can you so confidently say that God doesn't affirm an LGBTQ plus lifestyle? I said, it's not loving to affirm what the God of love doesn't affirm. How, how can you say that he doesn't affirm this? This is my third point. Things to be aware of. There is no ambiguity in the Bible regarding the sinfulness of an LGBTQ plus lifestyle. You, you can certainly find pockets within Christianity who disagree with me, but there has been no widespread division within Christianity over, over what the Bible says about homosexuality over the last 2,000 years. All three branches of Christianity, the Protestant branch, the Catholic branch, and the Orthodox branch agree on at least four things. The first, that every mention of homosexual practice in the Bible says that it is wrong. You won't find one positive statement about homosexuality in the Bible. Second, that it is specifically prohibited in both the Old and New Testaments. Three, that it did not just reflect the prejudices of the day, like many say, it actually cut against the views of ancient cultures. It was very countercultural to the time. And four, The arc of the Bible begins with a heterosexual marriage, Adam and Eve, and ends with a vision of one, the wedding feast in the book of Revelation. It it is my assessment, take it for what it's worth, that, that if committed to a fair, balanced, and whole approach to to the scriptures without bringing personal agendas into it, it is impossible to conclude that the Bible doesn't teach against the practice of an LGBTQ plus lifestyle. Um, This book, 
was the um, textbook for my New Testament Foundations class at Regent College. Um, New Testament Foundations is a survey course. You fly over all 27 books, um, just looking at some of the big picture elements in them. This book is uh, written by Luke Timothy Johnson. He's a, a renowned scholar, New Testament theologian. He has written much outside of outside of this textbook. The very fact that it's used for, I don't know if it still is, but used for the New Testament Foundations course at Regent says something. Regent itself is a renowned school. No one, I mean, any school that's housed people like Packer and Fee and, and Houston and others uh, has a good reputation around the world. Um, Luke Timothy Johnson uh, writes to this topic. Uh, he speaks into it. Uh, it's a longer quote, but it's on the screen. J just listen to what he says. The task demands intellectual honesty. I have little patience with efforts to make scripture say something other than what it says through appeals to linguistic or cultural subtleties. The exegetical, exegetical situation, exegesis, just looking at the text, what does it mean, what does it say? The exegetical situation is straightforward. We know what the text says. He then says this. I think it important to state clearly that we do, in fact, reject the straightforward commands of Scripture and appeal instead to another authority when we declare that same-sex unions can be holy and good. And what exactly is that authority? We appeal explicitly to the weight of our own experience and the experience of thousands of others have witnessed to, which tells us that to claim our own sexual orientation is in fact to accept the way in which God has created us. By so doing, we explicitly reject as well the premises of the scriptural statements condemning homosexuality, namely that it is a vice freely chosen, a symptom of human corruption and disobedience to God's created order. Huh. I, I disagree with Johnson's statement that homosexuality is a vice freely chosen. Um, and, and I also disagree with Johnson's deference to one's experience and the experience of others over the commands of the scriptures. But I do commend him for his honesty and for acknowledging what is plain the Bible clearly says and calls homosexuality a sin. It is straightforward. And it takes a lot of contorted creativity to make it say something else. He recognizes what is plain and simply rejects it and places experience over the scriptures. I do not. Fourth, the church needs to be a place where people with same-sex attraction and orientation are warmly welcomed and integrated. Same-sex attraction is not the super sin that some people make it out to be. In, in Romans 1, Paul groups homosexuality with covetousness, envy, deceit, gossip, and disobedience to parents. In 1 Corinthians 6, he groups it with things like drunkenness and greed. In 1 Timothy 1, he groups it with lying and profanity. 
None who practice these things, he says, will inherit the kingdom of God. Not tempted toward these things. Not fight these things. Not at times succumb to these things. But practice these things. Will inherit the kingdom of God. I I emphasize this for struggling with anything that God calls us away from, same-sex attraction or otherwise. And the out-and-out defiant practice of it are two entirely different things. Temptation towards something and the practice of that something are not two sides of the same coin. And therefore, the church needs to be a place where in the same way a person can say, I am a Christian, I love and follow Jesus, and, and I struggle with envy. Another person can say, I am a Christian, I love and follow Jesus, and I'm attracted to people of the same sex. And our response to both should be, welcome here. Let's follow Jesus together. In, in the church that I worked at before this one, um, West Side, we had three or four people in key leadership positions who were attracted to people of the same sex. Some of the best leaders I've ever worked with, some of the most passionate followers of Jesus that I have ever met. Christians with same-sex attraction should be leading our community groups. They, they should be teaching in our kids' ministry. They, they should be eldering our churches. They should be preaching in our pulpits. Fifth, one's sexual orientation does not supersede the clear teachings of the Bible. This is the I was born this way or God made me this way argument. Um, What does the Bible say to that? Well, the Bible is very clear. The reality is we are all, all born broken. And sin from conception to birth and thereafter affects all of us. That's why we all need to be born again. Being born with something or even being nurtured towards that something is not an allowance to practice that something. Uh, When I interviewed uh, Sam Albury uh, a number of years ago, uh, he is a pastor, he's a theologian, he's an author, Um, who is same-sex attracted. And when I interviewed him, he told me that none of us are born straight, quote-unquote. Sin has made us all crooked. And it's just that our crookedness just shows up in different ways, and therefore, we all need spiritual rebirth and the sanctifying work of the Spirit. King David believed that he was born a sinner, but still claimed responsibility for his sin. You you may be born same-sex attracted, but are still responsible for acting on it, as we all are in whatever ways we are tempted to act contrary to God's word. Six, just a few more. The mission of the church is to convert people to Jesus, not heterosexuality. 
I, I say this because the Bible does not promise that if you struggle with anything, same-sex attraction or otherwise, and come to Jesus, that you will no longer struggle with it thereafter. The closest that we have in the Bible that some people point to as support for this idea is in 1 Corinthians 6. And Paul makes a big list of, of vices and things that the people in that church, the Corinthian church, acted upon. And then he writes, and, and such were some of you. But Paul, what he isn't saying is that the temptation is removed but that the activity is no longer participated in. Big difference, big difference. Teachers and ministries that promise otherwise are more hindrance than help. And see, I have, I have some news for, for us, for you and me. Heterosexuality doesn't get you into heaven. Jesus does. And what Paul teaches in places like 1 Corinthians 6 is that when we come to Jesus, our identity is now in Jesus. And when our identity is in Jesus, things should change. Our envy should change, be changed to blessing. Our pride should be changed to humility. Our greed should be changed to generosity. Our lust should be changed to purity. And our sexuality should be changed to holiness. And we do great harm to people who are of the we're same-sex attracted when we say to them that the pursuit of holiness is the pursuit of heterosexuality. That is not the gospel. That's not the Bible. But on the flip side, one's sexuality can't cloud the discussion in this. Our sexuality and the, the identity that some so passionately find in it, cannot hinder our objectivity. How we look at the world, how we look at the scriptures, how we look at the story of God can't be filtered through our sexuality, just the opposite. As, as Christians, our identity is in Christ. And, and any identity other than in Christ is settling for that which is less than God's best for us. Seven, we must repent of the idol that we have made of marriage and stop believing that sex is where true intimacy is found. Do you know why I say that? <laughs> because marriage and sex don't exist in the kingdom to come. They are shadows, they are hints, they are foretastes of something coming that is better by far. Like baptism and communion, they are a divine, marriage and sex along with it are a, a divine picture that points to a greater reality and that reality can begin now in Christ. Marriage today points to Jesus' union with his bride, the church, and sex today is used in the scriptures very explicitly in some places describing how God feels for the church, and he uses sex to describe it. Um, Christopher West, you can read this behind me, 
speaking to this, that God made us sexual beings as men and women with the desire for union precisely to tell the story of his love for us. It's a great foreshadowing of something quite literally out of this world. Ed Shaw, Ed Shaw is a pastor in the UK, same-sex attracted. He writes, God has put sex on this planet to make us want to go to heaven. Tragically, however, we, we have taken these shadows, these hints, these foretastes, and we've made idols out of them. And if we don't take these idols and, and put them back in their proper place, it will be almost impossible to consider the plausibility of a holy, celibate lifestyle where intimacy is found in the family of God and the greatest love affair is with Jesus himself. Eight, 16, good for me. Marriage, as the Bible defines it, is the union between one man and one woman. This is how the Bible introduces marriage and from the very beginning and what what Jesus affirms thousands of years after in Matthew 19 by going back to the beginning, which is an important point. Jesus goes all the way back to the book of beginnings and said, have you not read? He would say the same to us today if he, if he was here. Have you not read? Ma- marriage is God's idea, not yours or mine. And it's certainly not our politician's idea. Which takes us full circle and, and to our text where Paul addresses the topic of marriage and he speaks rightly correctly, biblically, to husbands and wives and men and women. And he says the same thing that Jesus affirms by going back to the beginning. And in our text, which is very countercultural to the time, infers strongly that men and women, male and female, are equal. They have the same status. But they exist in a different state but both states are necessary to image the God who created them. Both states are necessary to point to something greater and both states are necessary to carry on the first mandate given to us to be fruitful and multiply. Equal, but not the same. Equal, but not interchangeable. Sex matters. Gender matters, and they are given to us by God and not something we choose for ourselves. He created us male and female. We didn't. You see, Midtown, there there is God, and then there is everything else. He is creator, we are his creation. Sex and gender isn't a social construct, it is a divine one. I'm not talking about masculinity and femininity. Culture does influence those. I have no problem with with that, and sometimes very wrongly. I'm talking about sex and gender. So too with marriage. 
He is the one who has created us and defines us, and it's in him where we find our identity. Don't let your sin define you. Let your Savior do that. My time is almost done. I want to just very quickly speak to parents here. Kids can't drive till they're 16. Uh, People can't vote until they're 18. People can't drink in BC until they're 19. Can't rent a car until you're 25, I think. Why? Because they're not ready. Don't have the life skills, haven't been developed, trained up, so on and so forth. We get that. We don't want six-year-olds drinking, right? They do in France, maybe, right? But not here, six-year-olds. Our politicians are saying to you, mom and dad, today, if your four-year-old or your five-year-old is confused about some things, and why wouldn't they be? Because they get hammered with this topic all the time. That your goal, your, your role, excuse me, is to just simply come alongside and affirm what they're doing when it comes to their, their understanding of gender and sex and who are they. Few things, to me, sound more demonic than that. Government doesn't raise your kids, you do. You've been called to raise your kids, to nurture them, train them up, pray with them, study the scriptures with them, put them in places where they're gonna hear the same, one meal at a time. I I just implore you, I implore you, it's a difficult time to be a parent, it's a difficult time to be a kid today, man. As I wrap up, I I probably don't need to remind you that sin was introduced to the cosmos in in Genesis chapter three, and it has impacted the entirety of, of the cosmos, for that's what sin does. It's like yeast in a big batch of dough. And that certainly includes things related to this topic. Uh, Things like gender dysphoria, which is a very real thing. I've walked with people who love Jesus, who live with gender dysphoria. Babies born without any apparent genitalia. Misogyny, adultery, homosexuality, polygamy, pornography, infidelity, rape, incest, divorce, and so on. That's just some of the impact that sin has had, but at its root and essence, sin places us at the center, where we are now God, and we rule, and we reign, and we decide, and we affirm those who do the same. Can I just, I'll end with this. We are not evolving today. We're not progressing today. We're we're devolving today. We're regressing today. Because we have exchanged the worship of the creator for the worship of created things with us at the center where self is on the throne. And claiming to be wise, we've become fools.
God help us. And so as I close, let me read and encourage you with the last five verses of our text. So you can't say you didn't teach out of, out of the text. I, I did. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, phileo love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. Please hear that. Even if you are getting persecuted for righteousness sake, the Lord's eyes are on you. He sees you as you live in exile today. He sees you. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil, which is why we exist to make Jesus known. It's why we do what we do, because there are people who are chasing evil, applauding evil, affirming evil, and they need to come to Jesus. And we have been gifted and empowered and been given the authoritative, sufficient word of God to help us in that process. Let's not live in fear. Let's not live in silence. Would you rise as I pray and we go into a time of response? Father, now as we respond, we love you. We thank you for your word. This is a heavy topic. There's lots of things to uh, digest. Um, so I pray for your grace. I also pray against the enemy who loves to snatch things. Um, I just pray against his work and effect. Um, this, this is a subject that's very personal for many of us. And so I pray most of all for the comfort of your Holy Spirit, guidance of your Holy Spirit um, uh, as, as we journey from here. Uh, with some of the things talked about today, uh, just kind of ruminating. Um, uh, thank you for meeting with us by way of your spirit and the, and the book that the spirit wrote. Um, we love you. We thank you that we don't have to guess at life. Um, and I, I, I pray and thank you in all these things in Jesus' great name. Amen. listening. For more information about Midtown, please go to mtownchurch.ca.